What's up, Cedar Creek? How are you today? All right, man, it's great to see all of you. Welcome to week two of Unleashing Your Generosity. This series of messages in which we are exploring not only the incredible generosity that God has toward us, but we're also focusing on how we can increase the level of our generosity, and then maybe most importantly, how we can leverage that generosity to make a positive impact in the lives of hurting people all around us. And you know, last week, we kind of kicked this thing off by focusing on financial generosity. We looked at some foundations for living a financially generous life, how to be generous with our money and with our stuff. Well, obviously, that is not the only area in which we can live generous lives. It is often the most difficult one for us to be generous with. I believe if we can learn to be generous with our money and our stuff, learning to be generous with everything else in our life will certainly come much easier. Now today, here's what I wanna do. I wanna kinda shift gears a little bit and move from talking about our outward behaviors to focusing on our inward attitudes because outward generosity is birthed out of an inward generous attitude. And the most important attitude when it comes to generosity is contentment. Contentment is the ultimate attitude to living a generous life. We have to learn how to be content in order to live generously. A lack of contentment will have a bigger effect on our generosity than the bottom line of our billfolds and our bank accounts. The cool thing, though, about contentment is not only will it help us live more generous lives, but it will actually increase the overall quality of our lives. Not my words. God's words. Notice Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verse 9. It says, being satisfied with what you have, in other words, being content is better than always wanting more. Why? Because always wanting more is like chasing the wind. You'll expend a lot of energy, but you'll never catch it. I think it was Howard Hughes, the millionaire from this, uh, you know, from 50 or 100 years ago who was asked, how much is enough? And do you know what his reply was? Just a little bit more. That's the problem with a lack of contentment. There is never enough. Which, by the way, the guy who wrote this verse from Ecclesiastes 6 is actually a guy by the name of Solomon. He was the son of King David. But more than that, he was the wisest man who has ever lived on this planet. And he was also the wealthiest man who has ever lived on this planet. In fact, Solomon's wealth would make Jeff Bezos look like a pauper today. And yet he would say with all of that wealth, 
with everything anybody could ever want in life, he would say that our best life doesn't come from having more, it comes from being more satisfied with what we have. And I think that's some wisdom we need to focus on today. Because this isn't the only thing that Solomon wrote about contentment. In fact, in the two books of the Old Testament that Solomon wrote, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, there's a lot of wisdom about being content. And one of the things Solomon talks about and writes about often are the negative effects of being discontent. So I want to take just a few moments as we get started to look at some of the things that discontentment will bring into your life. Because I can tell you this, being discontent will bring more stuff into your life. I'm just not sure it's the stuff that we really want more of. Four things discontent will lead to more of in your life. Number one, fatigue. Discontentment will lead to more fatigue in your life. Because always wanting more is exhausting. The more I want, the more I work to get it, and the more exhausted I become running after it. Notice what Solomon says, Proverbs 23, 4. Don't wear yourself out trying to get rich. Be wise enough to do what? What does he say? What's that word? Control yourself. See, the problem is not money or stuff. The problem is not working hard to be successful in life. The problem is wearing yourself out trying to get it. The great Russian writer Tolstoy wrote a famous short story entitled, How Much Land Does a Man Need? The story is of a peasant farmer who longs to own his own land. He's tired of working hard to make other people rich, and he dreams of owning land that he can farm to enrich his life and the lives of his family. And in this story, it says that a very wealthy landowner offered this peasant farmer an opportunity to have for free all of the land he could walk around in a single day. In other words, all the land he could circumnavigate between sunup and sundown would be his to own. So the next morning when the sun came up, the peasant farmer took off immediately. And the further he went, unfortunately, the more land he could see in front of him that was more beautiful and that he wanted more. And he just kept going and going until late in the afternoon, he realized he was a long way from the starting point and he only had a short bit of time to get all the way back to circle the rest of the land, to make it to the starting point so that he could own the land that he had walked around. And so he immediately takes off running as hard and as fast as he can to complete the circle. And and miraculously, just as the sun is setting, he crosses the finish line to the cheers of the villagers. But unfortunately, the farmer fell over dead of a heart attack. And Tolstoy writes that the members of the village take, took his body and dug a six-foot-long grave to bury him in, answering the title of the short story. How much land does a man really need? See, I think many of us are running after the stuff of this world and the stuff of this life. 
And I believe honestly, many of us are killing ourselves on the treadmill of our own discontent. In fact, it is often said of us as Americans, we spend the first half of our life sacrificing our health to get wealth, only to have to spend the second half of our life sacrificing that wealth to try to hold on to our health. You have more discontent in your life, you will have more fatigue in your life. A second thing discontentment will bring more of is expenses. Discontentment will create more expenses in my life because it costs more to have more. And I'm not talking about just buying the stuff, I'm talking about maintaining the stuff. Let me put it this way. The grass may be greener on the other side of the fence, but the water bill's higher on that side of the fence as well, because it costs. I believe we spend a lot of money and time financing our own discontent. You know, one of the things that fascinates me about this community that we live in is the number of mini storage warehouses we have for a town this size. I mean, have y'all noticed it? They're almost on every corner. They built a brand new one here on uh, Silver Bluff, three stories high, and it's already packed with stuff. Now, listen, I understand those many warehouses are great for storing stuff if you're in transition and moving, but let's get real. The majority of those little warehouses are stuffed full of things of, that people thought they could not live without at one time, and now they go years without ever laying eyes on it. And they're paying somebody monthly to store that stuff. It's expensive to have a bunch of stuff in your life. Notice what Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes chapter five. He says, the more you have, the more people come to help you spend it. Amen? Yeah, some of you are thinking about your adult kids right now. So what good is wealth, Solomon says, except perhaps to watch it slip through your fingers? When I read that verse this week, it reminded me of a documentary I saw on ESPN years ago. It was one of those 30 for 30 documentaries. And this was on professional athletes who made millions and millions of dollars during their career, but within a year or two of retiring were completely broke. It's like, how can one person spend that much money in that short a period of time? But in this documentary, what they discovered is that they didn't spend it themselves. They had a whole lot of people to help them spend it. Because see, being wealthy, having all that money meant they had to have attorneys, they had to have accountants, they had to have, you know, an agent, and of course they had to have their entourage, you know, to walk around with them to tell them how cool they were, and so they blew through millions of dollars in a short period of time. Why? Because it is expensive to manage all of that. Discontent will bring more fatigue. It'll bring more expenses into your life. And number three, it'll bring more anxiety into your life. Because the more you have, the more you have to worry about. I can stand up here in front of you and in all honesty tell you, I don't lose one minute of sleep worrying about barnacles growing on my yacht. It never crosses my mind because I don't have a yacht. 
Notice next verse in Ecclesiastes 5. Solomon says, those who work hard sleep in peace. It's not important whether they eat little or much, but rich people worry about their wealth and cannot sleep. Interestingly, I read this week, a recent study showed that insomnia increases with income. The more wealthy you are, the less often you sleep in peace. And then finally, a fourth thing, sadly, that discontent will bring into your life is conflict. Discontent will lead to more conflict in your life. It makes sense if you stop and think about it. Because the more fatigued you are, the more anxiety you have, the more conflict you're going to experience with the people around you. That's why Solomon says in Proverbs 15, greedy people bring trouble to their families. Notice what he says, or more than likely, notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say money and stuff brings trouble to our families. He says greed does it. Do you know what greed is? Discontent. It's always wanting more. You've heard me say this hundreds of times that the number one cause of divorce in America are money issues. But the number one cause of money issues is discontent in our lives. Yes, being discontent will bring more stuff into your life, but are you sure it's the stuff you really want more of? So let me ask you to do this. Before we move on, I want you to look at those four things that you've just written down and do an honest little heart check. Which one of those four do you find yourself dealing with in your life? Which one of those felt a little bit like your toes were getting stepped on this morning? And whichever one it is, I just want you to mark it, put a check by it, or just register it in your mind. And I'm asking you to do that not because I want to beat you over the head with guilt and shame. I want to give you a practical tool to minimize the discontent in your life. And here's how you do it. The next time you see something and you think, man, I want more of that, I want that, ask yourself, do I want it enough to get more of this in my life? I know you want more of that, but do you really want more fatigue, more conflict, more expenses, more anxiety? Because they're a package deal. They come together. And so the question is, what do we do about this? What do we do about the discontent that we all struggle with? It's easy to sit in here today and think, boy, Philip's really giving it to the rich people. He's really, but here's the truth. We all struggle with discontent. May not be in finances, but we're discontent with our circumstances. We're discontent with our health. We're discontent with our kids, with our spouses, with our job. We all struggle with discontent. So how do we deal with it? I want to recommend four things from God's Word to help us develop contentment. Four ways to be more content in your life. Number one, be intentional. Be intentional. Discontent or or contentment will not happen by itself. Do you know why? Because we live in a culture that breeds discontent. 
You understand there is a multi-billion dollar industry that exists for no other reason than to cause you to be discontent. Do you know what that industry is? It's the advertising and marketing industry. You recognize every commercial, every ad on Facebook has one purpose, to cause you to be discontent. I don't have that and I need it. Or the one I have is no longer good enough. I need a better one. We are constantly bombarded with this message of discontent. We have to be intentional. That's why Paul says in Philippians 4.12, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether living in plenty or in want. I want you to circle the word learned. Paul says, I've learned the secret. Why does he say that? Because contentment is not natural. We are not born content and then become corrupted by the world around us. We are born discontented. And it takes intentionality to work towards learning to be content. I can say it this way. The more aware I am of my tendency to be discontent, the more I'm able to practice learning to be content. It starts by being intentional. Intentional to do what? Number two, to stop comparing. To stop comparing. Comparison is the mother of all discontent. It's the number one source of our discontent, comparing ourselves to others. That's why Paul writes in Galatians 6, 4, pay careful attention to your own work and you won't need to compare yourself to anyone else. It's interesting, Paul is writing this in the context of comparison that's happening among Christians with their spiritual gifts and the way they live out their faith. This This right has nothing to do with money. He's talking about comparing themselves to their spirituality. But this principle holds true in every area of our lives because we compare every area of life. We compare our circumstances, our jobs, our kids, our spouses. Comparison is America's favorite indoor sport. And we all play the game. Two problems with comparison. One, when we compare, we always compare our known reality of our life with the perceived reality of the life of others. And social media has done nothing more than to compound this, right? You're comparing the the ups and downs of the real life that you're living to the highlight reel that somebody's showing you on Facebook or Instagram. And no wonder we feel bad when we do that. And listen, I've seen this time and time again. Listen, I have known people who I am personally walking with as their pastor who are going through horrible, difficult stuff, and yet I look at their Facebook page and it looks like they're living in Disney World every day with painted on smiles. When we compare, we know the reality of our lives, but we presume the reality of others. Second problem with comparison is for some reason, we always compare up, not down. Have you noticed that? 
When you compare yourself to others, you always compare to those who are a little better off, make a little more, have a little better life. But we rarely compare ourselves to those who are less fortunate than us. And look, we all do this, all of us, right? You leave here today, you get stopped at a red light on Whiskey Road, and you are driving, you know, a 2018 Silverado tricked out. You love this truck. You've had it for a couple of years. You love it. Then all of a sudden, somebody pulls up beside you in a 2021 Silverado. You start looking at that truck, and all of a sudden, your truck ain't that nice. All of a sudden, you're thinking, I need a better truck. We do it with each other's houses, right? Ladies, you go in somebody's house, don't you look at her furniture? Like, look at her furniture. Or guys, you got, look at his 85-inch flat screen TV with surround sound. Man, my 65-inch TV, it stinks. I need it. I want it. I got to have it. That's what we do. In fact, I heard of a couple, a couple right here in our church, they were having some tight financial circumstances. They were going through a tough time financially. They went to home group one night, and a new couple was hosting group in their home, and this couple had an incredible collection of antique furniture furniture. I mean, it's gorgeous antique furniture. And so they have home group. When they're leaving home group, this husband and wife get into the car and the wife immediately says, honey, did you see her furniture? It's amazing. Some of her furniture goes back to Louis the 14th, to which the husband replied, yeah, and some of ours is going back to Ikea on the 15th because we can't <laughs> afford it, right? We compare and it creates discontent. But listen, this is not just an unhealthy mindset. It's a sin issue. Comparison is a sin issue. In fact, it is such a big deal that God put it in his top 10 list of sins. It's the 10th commandment. Thou shalt not covet. We don't use the word covet in the English language anymore. So I looked it up this week and the Hebrew word for covet literally means to pant after. <laughs> I need it. I want it. I got to have it. Now, please don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that desiring nice things wanting a nice house or nice furniture or a nice vehicle. I'm not saying that desire is the problem. I'm saying uncontrolled desire is the problem. Look, what the Bible teaches about contentment is not you need to eliminate all the desires of your life. God gives you those desires. I'm not talking about eliminating human desire. That is not a Christian principle. That's actually a Buddhist principle. Did you know that? That is what the Buddha taught, that the root of all pain is caused by human desire. And so the path to peace is to eliminate all desire in my life, to want or desire nothing. That is nirvana to eliminate all desire from your life. That's not what the Bible is teaching. That's not what Solomon is saying. He's just saying that uncontrolled desire will lead to lust and lust will destroy your life. In fact, I'm gonna give these to you for free. These not, are not on your outline, but I wanna give you two tips to help you stop comparing. You can write these down if you want to, free of charge. One, learn to admire 
without having to acquire. Learn to admire the things that other people have without having to acquire them for yourselves. And here's how you could do this. Next time you go visit somebody's house and you find yourself coveting their furniture or coveting his truck or his television, just say this, just pray this. Jesus, thank you that you have blessed my friend with these things. And thank you, Jesus, that I don't have to make the payments on them, right? Learn to admire without having to acquire. The second tip, learn to enjoy without owning. Learn to enjoy without owning. I'm talking about leveraging the power of the rental, right? I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. Let's say you and your spouse decide, you know what, we really love going to the lake. We really have a lot of fun riding jet skis. So what do we do? We go out and purchase two jet skis plus the trailer to pull them on. And the first summer, we're going to the lake every chance we get, like five weekends, we rode jet skis on the lake. Next summer, not as much. Maybe we only go three times that summer. In the third summer, we maybe are only able to make it one time where we enjoy the jet skis. And yet for the other 365 days, they're sitting in the garage taking up space and we're still making payments on it. What I'm saying is just rent the jet skis when you go to the lake. Mathematically, it comes out much better. It's a much better financial decision to leverage the power of the rental. Just rent them and use them when you enjoy them. You can do that with everything. Vacation homes, right? You know the people I know who have vacation homes? Not all of them, but some of them. You know what they do when they go to their vacation home for vacation? They spend most of their time fixing stuff, working on it, doing maintenance on it. They rarely get to enjoy it. I'm just saying use VRBO and rent somebody else's stuff and enjoy it and rent it. Now, please hear me. I am not saying go home today and sell your beach or lake or mountain property. Because if you do that, I won't have any place to stay. What I'm saying is do an honest evaluation and say, you know what? Is this really providing for us what we wanted it to provide for us? Is it really doing what we wanted it to do? Or has it become more of a burden than a joy? Learn to enjoy without owning. Number three, the third thing we have to do to be content is just do that. Enjoy what I have. Enjoy what I have. Developing contentment is not only being grateful for what I have, but enjoying everything that I do have. I think for me, maybe for you as well, sometimes I get so busy going after what I want that I don't take the time to enjoy the stuff I already have. I see this all the time. I mean, our community is full of beautiful homes, but nobody's ever home. Nobody's there to enjoy. They're all out working 10, 12, 14 hour days, you know, seven days a week. Our community is full of beautiful backyards that have pools that nobody ever swims in and gardens that nobody ever sits in and enjoys the peace and quiet. In fact, notice again what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 5. 
If God gives us wealth and property and lets us enjoy them, we should be grateful and enjoy what we have worked for. Why? Because it is a gift from God. You know, last week I talked about the principle of ownership, that everything I have belongs to God. He is the owner. I am the manager. But we often forget that God gives us the things that he gives us, not just for us to manage, but also for us to enjoy. God is not a tyrant. God is not a taskmaster. He's not a cosmic killjoy. He is a good, good father who loves giving gifts to his children, and he loves watching his children enjoy what he's given them. So let me ask you. Are you taking the time to enjoy what God has given you? Or is discontent causing you to be so busy that you can't enjoy what you have? And then finally, number four. The last and maybe one of the most important things to do to develop contentment is take a long-term view. Take a long-term view of your life. Because I think one of the biggest mistakes we make in our lives is short-term thinking. In fact, I know in my life, most of the issues, most of the problems, most of the struggles I have are the result of my own short-term thinking. We often trade what we want most out of life for what we want right now. That's why way too many of us are dealing with crushing levels of debt because we sacrificed the life we really wanted for the life that we could finance right here, right now. That's why Solomon says in Proverbs 21.5, good planning, in other words, long-term thinking and hard work lead to prosperity, but hasty shortcuts will lead to poverty. What does that mean? It means the more discontent I am, the more susceptible I become to the get-rich-quick scheme. That I'm vulnerable because I, I want to just think about the here and now instead of thinking about long-term. Did you know that the most beautiful, the most ornate, and the most expensive modern buildings in the world are all built on the strip in Las Vegas, Nevada? Do you know why? Because every year, millions of people go there thinking they're going to strike it rich. But let me tell you something. Vegas don't have money to build those buildings because people are striking it rich. Vegas builds those buildings because people are losing money to the house. We're susceptible to just get it quick, make it happen. All of a sudden, I can have whatever I want. It's like the lottery. I'm not against the lottery. I'm not preaching against the lottery. I'm just saying, let's take a guy who's 30 years old. And every week he spends $10 playing the lottery. Now, it's not a problem, right? He's not taking, you know, food off his kid's table. He's not late with his bills. He's just using 10 extra dollars that he has, discretionary money, and he's buying lottery tickets every week. Nothing wrong with that, but here's the reality. He has a better chance of getting struck by lightning twice in the same day than he does to winning millions in the lottery. If that same guy at age 30 would take that same $10 and put it into a mutual fund every week and leverage the miracle of compounding interest, by the time he turned 60, he would be guaranteed to have 
a million dollars. You see what I'm saying? Long-term thinking. Not just with money and stuff, but a long-term thinking about our lives. What do we want our lives to really be all about? What are you investing your life in? What legacy do you really want to leave? What are you spending your time, your talents, and your treasure on today that will still be here long after you're gone? Is it in the stuff of this world that will eventually just be wood, hay, and stubble, turn to dust, or be burnt up? Are you investing your life in something that is eternal, something that will last forever? Did you know there are only two things on this earth right now that will last forever? Do you know what those are? Do you know the two things that are on this earth right now that will last forever? The word of God and the people. God's word is eternal, but so are the lives of the people around you. And so we have a choice. Every day we make a choice. Whether we are spending our lives on material possessions or are we spending them on deeper relationships? Are we running after the stuff of this world with a discontented heart or are we running with everything we have, with every moment we've been given to bring the message of eternal hope, the gospel message to the broken and hurting people who are right around us. Because that's what it looks like. That's what it means to unleash God's generosity into the lives of the people he brings into our paths. I think that's exactly what Jesus meant when he said these words from Mark chapter 8. If you try to hang on to your life, if you make it all about you and what you can store up, you will lose it. But if you give up your life, not for the stuff of this world, but for my sake and for the sake of the good news, then you'll have life, true life, eternal life. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for holding up the mirror for me to look at in my own life. Thank you for loving me enough to speak hard truth to me about where my own discontent is getting in the way of that full, meaningful, and purposeful life that you created me for. And Jesus, I'm sure I'm not the only one struggling with this today. I know that many Many of my friends, many of our church family, many people here today that I love and care for are having that same struggle. So Jesus, would you fill us with the power of your Holy Spirit so that we can leave here today and not just go, man, that was a thought-provoking message, but that we would allow it to be a life-changing message. That you would not just inform us today, but that you would transform us by the truth of your word and that in knowing your truth and living out that truth, we can truly be set free from the discontent that is stealing 
our lives away. Move among us right now, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.